0: Welcome. This morning, we're in Acts 9, finally, and in verse 26 through 31, and this is about Saul. Let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can come together and open your word and learn and be encouraged. Help us to understand what you've said and then to believe what you said, and then to act accordingly by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've asked Eric to read the whole section, Acts 9, 26 to 31.
1: It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. So, the last time
0: we talked about Saul, we were in Damascus, and he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord there, and... Persecution broke out, and they lowered him down in a basket, and then now we see Saul in Jerusalem. Now, we need to remember that this Saul, who we know as Paul, had been one of the fiercest critics of those who believed in Messiah said he was breathing out threats of slaughter he had letters from the high priest he was going to persecute in prison and do whatever he could to anybody who believed in Christ and then Christ appeared to him as we read in Acts 9 and he was converted now I think the last time we were I taught Sunday school. Eric gave a little uh, layout of Galatians and Acts, right? There's a little difference. And we explained authorial intent, and it's not Luke's purpose to defend Paul as an apostle before people in Galatia. But it was Paul's. And so Paul told about those three years that we... Eric talked about, we accounted for. And the reason Luke doesn't narrate that is that Luke is writing about how God worked by the Holy Spirit through the apostles to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost parts of the world, Acts 1.8. Luke's purpose is different than Paul's in Galatians. We just need to accept that. Luke's purpose isn't to narrate a biography of Paul's life. His purpose is to narrate the spread of the gospel. And that's happening through the work of the Spirit. So soon after this section, Paul will, quote, disappear for a bit, and then Peter will come back into focus. But remember, the point is God is using those he's chosen to bring the gospel throughout the world. That's the point. So we'll see that Luke uses his own techniques to keep narrative flow going when it's not strictly a biography. And one of the ways he does that is with geographical places. At the end of this pericope or section we'll hear about Tarsus. Then we won't hear about Tarsus, and we'll have Peter and some things that Peter did, including bringing the gospel to God-fearing Gentiles. And later, when Paul comes back into the narrative, Tarsus appears. That's how he kind of pulls it together. So understanding authorial intent and how Luke writes helps us understand Luke. And it's an artificial idea to say, well, everything has to follow chronological and biographical order. This happened, then this, and and then this, and then this. And I have shown you in the past that that's not even how secular history is written. Very few history books are going to just be strictly chronological. One day follows another. A lot of times histories have to do with topics and themes and what have you. So if you read various histories of America, you might read the history of America's wars or history of America's presidents or history of America's laws or history of America's different people groups. There's all kinds of themes that can be written in history. So liberal critics will find any reason they can to not believe the Bible. All right, so my advice is don't listen to liberals. (laughs) However, I will give one positive thing that's been happening. Because that artificial approach has been discredited in academic circles, the new approach to writing commentaries on Scripture is to just use authorial intent. And the best scholars, whatever their theological background, are expected to know this. What They may not even believe Luke was a real person who actually wrote. They may not believe that. But they can still write a helpful commentary because they'll say the narrator has this happening. And the narrator means this. And that all can be found from the text. And if you're a conservative and you believe the narrator is Luke, fine, you're still learning something. And that's kind of how they do it. The good thing is it brought some brilliant minds into helping us understand. They can accurately tell you what Luke-Acts says, and what was meant by the author and how it works and what they mean, whether in their own mind they're thinking this is inerrant or not. Okay, so that's better than the old version of liberalism to spend all their time trying to discredit anything the Bible says. Would you agree with that? Have you noticed that?
1: And, you know, it's really refreshing, too, because now in scholarship, if you look at some old commentaries, they're always comparing. If you, let's say, you study the Gospel of Matthew, well, they always line up all the synoptics, and then all you're doing is comparison studies. But they're never getting into the point of the author. And a lot of times, remember, these authors are inspired by the Spirit to write what they wrote. And there's reasons why, as Bob is saying, they focus on the material they do. So now we're really free to just read the author for what he says. And what's very interesting is when you do have a discrepancy or an apparent one, it'll be resolvable. And oftentimes, let me give you one example. Matthew 24, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the parousia of the Son of Man. Matthew 24:37. Luke says the same thing, but he just changes the words a little bit. As it was in the days of Noah, Luke 17:26. So it will be at the, in the days of the Son of Man. So do you notice the days of the Son of Man are synonymous with the parousia? Well, that helps me know that the parousia, the coming, isn't just a one-day event. So there's sometimes you can learn, but what I'm reading Matthew, I'm reading Luke, I just read them for what they say. And that's what Bob has been helping all of us do, I think, through Luke-Acts. Read what the intent of the author is.
0: Yes. So that's why when I've been preaching and teaching Luke-Acts, I do Luke-Acts. And when I want to know something about Acts... I'm, I'm going to refer to Luke, not Mark. And this idea of, well, it's like God made a mistake to have four Gospels. Let's put them all together and only have one. And that was one of the dumbest things anybody ever did to help us not understand what God said. <laughs> right. And why people think God didn't do it right, There should be a Gospel you know, mishmash together, It really messes things up because Luke has his way of telling us what God did. The best work I have on this is from this Robert Tannehill. And I don't know if he's a liberal or conservative. It really doesn't matter because he understands Luke X better than anybody I've ever read. And I'm thankful that I learned about him when I was in seminary. I'm constantly reading Tannehill and I've learned how to do it so well. I'm actually able to do it myself and see things Tannehill didn't see because it's already in the text. Luke is telling us what he means. We need to just be good readers. And that's something that's important. Learn how to read. What is the author telling us? As conservatives... We believe the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write infallible scripture. But it's not going to hurt us to know what Luke meant. It's going to help us. So that's why guilt by association is the stupidest version of discernment that we can think of. Do you, well, yeah, some of you are looking at me like, why would you say that? Because it's not how we discern. I have seen the stupidest arguments. Come from so-called conservatives because they absolutely believe in in guilt by association. So and so associated with so and so, associated with so and so. Therefore, whatever so and so says it's all wrong, no matter what. And they end up parochial and they get in this middle I only listen to these few people in my own denomination who all agree on the same thing, and nobody dares think. Because if you get a little bit outside, they're going to attack you with viciousness like you've never seen. The most vicious attacks that have come against me in 45 years has always come from the right. Absolutely. People have just lambasted me for teaching out of something besides the King James. They just tear into you viciously. And you, how do you defend yourself? Well, they they use guilt by association in order to make their point every single time. Wicked people all conspired to make wicked Bibles, so only the King James is really God's word. If you don't believe that, then they hate you. and won't have anything to do with you. So, took this book this thick, they sent all of us pastors back in the, 90s to tell us we could only use the King James. Research, I researched and researched, went with a research assistant who was helping me. We went down to the old 19th century part of the seminary library, found the books that these people used to prove that everything but the King James is a wicked conspiracy, and found out the quotes weren't even accurate. They were taking, like kind of like what they're doing to our president now. You take something here, take something here, take something here, put it all together, make them say the opposite of what they actually said. I did all that work, wrote a paper, wrote a booklet, put it out there, and then they came back and said, oh, well, then don't, uh, because I refuted this Gail Riblinger. well, that's not a good one. Here's a different King James Only book. Now you got to do that one. So I'm not going to spend the rest of my life chasing down everybody's theory. I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and did work that nobody would have done. And they're still not satisfied. Now I got to listen to somebody else. So, guess what? I'm going to preach the best translation from the Greek that I can find. And I promise you, I may not get it right. You can judge that. But the research will have been done. Careful, prayerful study will have been done. Every verse every word, everything God said, and we'll present to you in your language, English, the best we can, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to hear it because it's not the King James, then go listen to somebody else. I just heard somebody quoting the King James this morning on TV who's a total heretic. All right, why'd I get off on that? Well, here we are. When he came to Jerusalem, he actually did come to Jerusalem. He's trying to associate with the disciples. Why are they afraid of him? Because the last they knew of Saul years back, he was their enemy. He wanted to kill him. Of course they're afraid of him. He was a powerful man who attacked the church. And they had a hard time believing he could possibly be one of us. Do you know God delights to save unexpected people? God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. God changes lives. God will convert people. And I love knowing the fact that I don't know who's going to be converted because it gives me boldness to preach to everybody. Don't write somebody off because you don't know who God's going to save. And Eric's been, for example, teaching about what the doctrine of hell is all about. It's interesting. People that are not converted, a lot of times are angry about the doctrine of hell. They get so angry about it. So some people think, well, if I'm going to convince them, I've got to come up with some reason that they don't have to believe in hell. So I heard one the other day, conditional mortality, immortality. You're only immortal if you believe the gospel, otherwise you're not. But it's not taught in the Bible. But Here's what I've noticed. If somebody is converted, they believe in hell immediately and it doesn't offend them. I didn't believe in a literal hell until about three seconds before I was saved. Literally. And I was Diane was witnessing to me, she became a Christian before me. We were engaged at the time. And there were about three seconds where I knew hell was real. And I knew I was going there.
1: For three seconds. <laughs>
0: Before that, I used to tell people to go there, but I didn't believe it existed. (laughs) Okay. So, for three seconds, I'm going to hell. I need to repent. I need Christ. And I was saved. So, dear saints, we don't have to change anything. Just need to preach it. And... If God converts somebody, all of a sudden, they'll know, I need to repent. Hell is real. Yes. I've always found it funny that they would uh,
2: be more apt to believe in heaven, but they wouldn't believe in hell, and uh, you reminded me of the uh, years ago you touched on this, that book, The Shack, the the movie now is coming out, which deals with a lot of the stuff that uh, you were just talking about the uh, uh, ex- eternal uh, uh, damnation and uh, things like that, where they are real liberal in that. In fact, uh, Jan Markell had a, a show dedicated to that uh, yesterday, and uh, the the the, uh, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a, a woman, and uh, there's, there's everything in just like the book everything is wrong biblically
0: right so what we know is we need to be bold in proclaiming the gospel That's a theme in luke acts by the way parasy of boldness now let's look at what all happened here three years after his conversion then we have acts 9 13 and 14 ananias was told to go pray for him ananias answered Lord, I've heard from many about this, man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority for the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias was afraid of him. Jerusalem's afraid of him. This guy is a Christian? Yes. And uh, Ananias did pray for Saul, who regained his sight, and was baptized and so on. So there's uh, there's continuity, by the way. In Damascus, there was preaching, a plot against Saul, and then an escape. In Jerusalem, preaching, plot, escape. That's how Luke's helping us follow. This, ha- this is a repeated theme. So let's go to verse 27. Barnabas, we saw him earlier, Acts 4, 13. Luke loves to introduce somebody and then later they become more important. Remember the first time we heard about Saul? He was holding the coats of the people at Stone Stephen. Why is he here? We'll find out later. God's going to save him. So Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, that's what he did, took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, described to them, how he had seen the Lord on the road. Then he had talked to him. Now at Damascus, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So having seen the Lord is an important qualification. I refer you to what Eric shared. What was that the last time I spoke? We have a whole section that Eric taught how... Seeing the Lord was a necessary qualification to be an apostle. That's why it's important. So this Saul, saw the Lord, was appointed by the Lord, and was someone who preached boldly in the Lord's name. Paul later will narrate several times his encounters with the Lord. So it's important in Luke Acts... Now, this boldness, parousia, is something that not only the Lord gave to Saul of Tarsus to preach, but it's something that we should have. It's something that Paul prayed for. Pray for me that God will give me boldness to speak as I should speak. That's in Ephesians. Boldness is something that comes to people through the Holy Spirit. We need boldness very badly because the whole world hates what we're preaching. I think you can see that more all the time. I just finished writing a sermon this last week for March 26, and I'm going to do an excursus back to John 15 about Jesus teaching his disciples, that they will be hated. And that was also in 1 John 4:13. Then the first sermon in the new meeting location, I'll be back in 1 John, carrying on that theme that we need to be bold in the Lord and in the gospel. And last week I preached how the way to know the Holy Spirit is working is as someone is confessing Christ. Now, let me give you a preview. The whole world hates the gospel. They always have, they always will. 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's two spiritual domains. The domain of Satan and the domain of Christ. Conversion means being plucked out of one and transferred into the other as soon as you go from one to the other you're seen as an enemy by the world that's what the bible tells us and this is going on right now there is so much hostility right now in america to Christianity that they're they're actually angry about things that look like it might be Christian. Have you noticed that? Yeah, there's people that aren't hardly Christians themselves. Anybody who, for example, believes in the preservation of human life, ah, we hate you, burn something, throw a brick, beat you with something. They're so angry. They're hating and angry. We can't stand Christians. We can't stand people we think are Christian even if they're not. You have to join us in hating the good or we hate you. Have you noticed that? In an, on under 26th, I'm going to preach a sermon about why and how Jesus warned us that that will be true. And how we can survive being hated the rest of our lives.
1: Bob, it's so amazing what you're saying here. It's so true. I remember I was an airline pilot. I was flying on September 11th. The world hates us so much because our message is that God died for man, that they'll side with the religion that says man should die for God. That's Islam. That's how much those who are opposed to Christianity hate us. They'd rather line up with those who will slaughter them rather than us who will preach the gospel to them. That's hatred, and that's what we see in spades, I think, today in America. It's Absolutely. it's really vile
0: unbelievable hatred, and it's endless, and it's ubiquitous. And I'm not saying that's true because America is, is a Christian nation.
3: Well, just a note of of comfort in, in within this. There's enough of what I call the Christian underground in America that Trump won the election largely because he appealed to us.
0: Well, Even though why? he
3: himself is not a Christian, I, yeah, I don't think. we
0: don't believe that, we don't know the heart, but when somebody calls evangelicals in the second person, they're not claiming to be one. So, but God raises up the rulers.
3: Can you and Eric speak to this uh, issue about being, there being a strong Christian presence in America Well, right now?
0: I'll, I'll tell you what is always true. God has his people. And it's always been the case. The Old Testament, remember the people who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal? We might think there aren't any. And God always has his remnant. And the ideas that are true need to be put out there in the public arena. Now, let me relate this to our text. Parousia boldness. Because The gospel is antithetical to the belief, behavior, and religion of the ruler of darkness. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's every pressure, spiritual, emotional, and societal, to shut us up. If you want to have peace... And you want to be light, quit talking about Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection, the blood atonement, the need to repent, to need to come to him to avoid hell. You get rid of all of that, and you can be our friend. And there's a lot of pressure. This article that I'm still working on, it's been written, it's going to be edited on two domain theology shows that the seeker movement cannot be from God because it's assuming there's no big difference between Christians and the lost. That if we appeal, I have had a visual, here's this great big, huge mass, the authority of darkness, the whole world lies in it. When Jesus Christ came into this world the power of God invaded the kingdom of darkness. Luke says that this is a visitation. A visitation, episcope in the Greek, is in the Old Greek Old Testament meant a visitation of God. When God comes on the scene, people will either be saved or judged. I'm going to preach on this, the 26th. Peter talks about keep your behavior excellent before the Gentiles so that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. I'll give you a preview. The visitation is when God comes. And when he does, you'll either be saved, rescued, exalted, or judged and damned. So when Jesus came on the scene of history, and that's a theme in Luke acts, and it was declared by spirit inspired prophets early in Luke that this is the visitation of God using that word. And Jesus laments over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the day of visitation. What did that mean? That means for most of them and Israel as a whole, It's going to mean judgment rather than salvation. The remnant is saved and the rest are judged. And furthermore, the visitation turns out rescues unexpected people. The immoral woman weeping on Jesus' feet. Gentiles, Samaritans, poor, rejected, Unexpected people. The day of visitation becomes a day of salvation and joy and the power of the Holy Spirit and changed lives. But for the religious elite, the powerful, the people that control everything, they don't recognize it and it becomes a day of judgment. And so the visitation of God is coming now through the gospel, getting us ready for the final one. The day of visitation 1 Peter 2 12 and then therefore when we proclaim the gospel that's the boldness we need because the day of God's visitation is coming on through the gospel and Jesus said I came to bring division if we're going to have any kind of salvation there has to be division Otherwise, we'll all just sit under the domain of darkness. And the visitation, by the way, also always is accompanied by forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, Eric.
4: Um, I, at the risk of going on a tangent, I think this is uh, valid. You know, in Joel and, you know, in the Hebrew uh, in the In the Israeli climate, they talk about the former rains and the latter rains, and there 's the uh, the the holy Spirit w- is the that we have in the world now is that the is that the former rains the earlier rain? you mean Joel the,
0: yeah. Joel has announced it acts yeah okay and going on. yeah okay it 's an already not yet would you say so an already go ahead Eric south. Get a cough drop. Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the reference to the rains has to do with their agricultural cycle. And so, remember, they would have the Feast of Tabernacles would correspond to the ingathering of the harvest. Well, what's interesting is that's likened to the pouring out of the Spirit. So the last days are ushered by the coming of Messiah, because the Messiah is the Son, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So the image, then, is like the latter rains. God would pour out in the last days— his spirit upon all mankind not meaning universally everyone's going to be saved but the issue for the jews was mankind was significant because it meant jew and gentile so the spirit would be poured upon the people of god without distinction it would no longer be just moses the prophet of god or david the king or a priest within the temple who would be anointed with the spirit but all God's people would be. And that's the great promise from Joel two twenty-eight through 32, which, like Bob is saying, was alluded to in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. So,
4: so, so believers right now, we have the Holy Spirit. See, this is where the Old Testament ties in with the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit within us through the new covenant. Amen. Yes. And, Amen. And, 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 you know, you see in Acts, Luke, Acts, you see the, manifest, you see the Holy Spirit at work all the time. And it all ties together. So there's a linear aspect. We have to be logical. But then you, you have to understand comprehensively. And this is where, you know, just reading the entire Bible and, and, and understanding all of it in the in original languages, which, of course, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek, but but where, you know, some of the liberal commentators, even, them, even those people can, you know, even a blind pig can find theological mud once in a while. But... <laughs> But, uh, but where we get the Bible in its full uh, comprehensiveness. Yeah. Once we here.
0: understand the meaning of the author, the author was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in keeping with what you're saying, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people in Acts, one of the things that happens is they speak boldly. They speak with parousia, bold frankness. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't believe that people actually go to hell, do you? Yes. Ah! (laughs) That's horrible. Well, so God says, I'd be a liar if I told you anything else. Verse 28, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem. Here's our theme, speaking out boldly. In the name of the Lord. We talked about this in the sermon last week. What does the name of the Lord signify? His character, his person, his mighty deeds. And if we understand the name of Jesus, we need to understand the doctrine of Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he said we needed to do, his preexistence his session at the right hand of God, his sinless life, his resurrection. All of the things the Bible tells us about Christ are accompanies this idea of the name of the Lord. So when we speak boldly in the name of the Lord, we're speaking about Christ and we're preaching the gospel. It's, uh, here's that passage I alluded to, Eric, ephesians six nineteen and twenty all right, and Eric in the back acts nine fifteen and sixteen
1: here 's ephesians six nineteen through twenty it says, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, and by the way, before this he prays for supplication so we 're to pray for this he says, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Boldly as
0: I ought to speak. There's one way we should speak the gospel, boldly. Why did Paul need prayer? He seemed like he was bold by nature. We all need prayer. Because the temptation is to want people to like us. Doesn't mean we have to have a nasty demeanor. Doesn't mean we can't be kind and even gentle. But the words need to describe the truth of the gospel without any compromise. And that's what we need to do. And we need prayer all of us. Pray we in the prayer email uh, email goes out. There's always prayer for the evangelists that are going. Why? that God may give them the boldness and grace to share the gospel to people who don't believe in it. Okay, Acts 9, 15, and 16.
4: Okay, a- Acts nine fifteen and 16 here. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake.
0: Yeah. He's going to suffer because of the doctrine of Christ. And I'll read Acts 4.31. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They began to speak the word of God with boldness. There's the real evidence of the Holy Spirit preaching with boldness. This is what God said. This is what we need to believe. We're going to need this. The world hates us, and we're tempted to change the message so that they'll quit hating us. But the only way to do that is to walk away from the power of the Holy Spirit and please men rather than God. The seeker movement is D-O-A. Dead on arrival. It takes dead sinners, tells them what they want to hear, and leaves them dead. Guess what? To be dead, you do not have to go to church. You're going to be dead Anywhere. <laughs> I don't care. You could be dead while you're sleeping in bed. Or. But I heard from the preacher I told last week that there were no miracles and the Bible was false, I didn't know I was dead, but I figured nothing would change in church. So I was dead on the golf course on Sunday morning. It's all right with my dead Catholic buddies gambling 10 cents a hole and being shamed by a 14-year-old who kept beating us. Straight down the middle, on the green, in the hole. Now, boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. That's 929. And he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. But they attempted to kill him. If you can't beat him in a debate, kill him. Oh yes. That's how it goes. Kill the messenger. They couldn't refute him. Debated is a cool word. And uh and it's used in Mark nine fourteen. It says when they came back to the disciples. They saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes debating or arguing with them. And so it was used here, and uh, Stephen debated Acts six nine. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including Syrinians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia, Cilicia, and Asia, rose up and argued, debated with Stephen. Luke 24, 15. While they were talking, discussing, Jesus himself approached, them, uh, talking, discussing, as they were debating with each other, Jesus approached and began traveling with them. Remember the disciples? They were debating, what was this all about? What, what happened? why did they be, Why was Jesus crucified? And while they're debating the issue... Here comes the resurrected Messiah. Here he is. And he explained the gospel, everything about himself from the scriptures. And he said, wasn't our heart burning within us? Oh, that must have been the greatest lecture ever heard. Jesus on the road to Emmaus explaining everything in the scriptures about himself. So debating isn't bad. Go ahead.
1: See, Bob, um, what's interesting, when I was in seminary, we had to read a book by a man named Peter Enns, and he tried to claim that the Old Testament really wasn't messianic. Well, that's one of the passages that really refutes that, because Jesus is using the Old Testament to talk about himself. And one other point here when it talks about debate, isn't it interesting? What we're claiming, if we have our theology right, is we are called to debate, but God is the one who ultimately persuades. So, for example, those who don't have their theology right they'll bring the sword. That's what the Roman Catholic Church did for hundreds and hundreds of years. We will force you by the sword to believe. Well, that's not our role. Our role is simply to proclaim the word boldly, as Bob is saying, and let the spirit work, because dead sinners can't be regenerated by the sword. If the battle is to believe, only God can regenerate the heart, enable them to believe. And so that clarifies our role. Debate in proof, but persuasion is God's. Yes, yeah. and
0: we're supposed to give a reason for hope within us. Amen. That's why when I've had opportunity, I've debated, including large public debate. I don't know if I do it now because I never know if I'm going to have a voice or not, but I debated Doug Paget, Emerging Church, debated Greg Boyd, open theism, and I love doing it. And what I do in every case in these debates, is just put the scripture. I use PowerPoint. Put the scripture up. Here's what God said. And then they'll go off on their philosophy. Here's what God said. Philosophy. Here's what God said. Philosophy. Always. So that's all right. They can have their philosophy. I'll have the scripture. You know what has power? Scripture. You know what's powerless? The wisdom of man. So you debate what's true. He debated with them and they wanted to kill him. So Stephen did this, Acts 6 and 9. Saul was also Greek speaking, so these were his former friends that he was debating with. And I'm sure he was a formidable opponent. Saul of Tarsus, brilliant man who loved the Lord because of God's work of grace. So they killed Stephen because they couldn't refute what he was saying. Remember they rushed on him and killed him with Saul holding your coats? Now they want to kill Saul. Well, he's a turncoat. We want to kill him too. Verse 30, but when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. I mentioned this earlier. That's how Luke threads the narrative together for continuity. Next week, we'll be back to Peter, what God was doing through Peter. Saul is off in Tarsus and we'll pick up what happens there in Acts 11.25. And so there's um, a vision here who wants to be a reader brian beers acts 17 excuse me acts 22 17 through 21
2: It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles
0: Stephen was martyred Paul protected and sent elsewhere God is in charge he'll use each of us as he sees fit we have one job what was true about Stephen and now converted Saul they were both bold in the Holy Spirit, about the gospel. One was martyred, the other whisked away because God had more for him to do. Sometimes we start comparing ourselves with each other, which isn't wise, and we wonder why one Christian has this situation, another Christian has that situation. But God is committed to using each of us providentially in his own way so that we might live a life that honors him and be bold in the gospel. And that may look different, totally different. Is there injustice that Stephen was martyred while God had allowed that and then Saul was holding the coats? Saul could have been martyred, but he, he's protected. He, the vision him he's gone. No. There's nothing in the Bible that says it's going to be the same for everybody. Remember the narrative in John? What about this man? It was Peter and John. And Jesus said, What's it to you, Peter? Well, it seems to mean a lot to us because all we know is this life. But eternity is a long time. It really is. (laughs) Long and long and long. And I'm sure when we're in eternity, we won't be wondering, well, why did I die at such and so an age and somebody else lived to be 100? As if that were better. Living to be 100 would only be a good thing is if you got your right mind and you're relatively healthy. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase, to increase. So the gospel was being boldly preached. The church was being built up. In other words, people were being added to it. People were converted and joined together with one another. That's what the church is. They feared God. That's what the church does. And they were comforted. So now we know something else is true about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit gives us boldness in the gospel and he comforts us. As we're bold in the gospel, we're going to make a lot of enemies. But we have each other and we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I firmly believe in the church. I'm going to just talk about any particular one, but just the idea that when people are converted they join together. God uses us corporately to be a comforted group that's there for one another. We need each other because the world hates us.
1: Say, Bob. Yes. I, I like your note here which says church is singular but refers to Christians in their local assemblies. What's very interesting is the church ecclesia, the assembly, always in the New Testament refers to believers. And the reason that's important is, remember, Israel, when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, was comprised of people who were believers and non-believers, okay? So you can see why it's bad to try to say the church is Israel, because the church is always comprised of as believers. Right. And this should really caution those who are Reformed theologians who try to claim that you can have some people who aren't, believers namely infants who are partakers of the new covenant church are you with me because the church in the new testament is always believers whereas israel who had circumcision was comprised of both the regenerate and the unregenerate so we have to see that distinction the church is never seen as a mixed bag we know that the wheat and tares grow together But the wheat and tares are never referred to as the church. The church, technically, is always believers, as Bob has pointed out. Yes, the
0: excellent called out ones. Exactly. Yes. So, we strongly disagree with Reformed theology. That's why we don't have infant baptism. That's why we're not a millennial. And we do not believe that anything written after the death of the apostles is binding and authoritative and there are many people who are reformed who will always go back to some document in church history and say there it is that's it that's what you have to believe why why you mean I can't challenge Calvin why can't I was he, did he see the Lord was he a disciple instructed for three years by Jesus himself Was he inspired to write in there in scripture? No. Doesn't mean I disbelieve everything Calvin says, but I read it like I would read any other theology. Might be right, might be wrong. Eric is right. The church is not Israel. The church is the called out one. You can't enter the church by being baptized as an infant, and you don't enter the church by being born into a Christian family. yes.
3: I was going to mention one other aspect of the church that, you know, God's really been putting on my heart recently is just I've been, you know, reading through how the different functions of the church. So there's, you know, teaching, wisdom, you know, knowledge. And then he lists gifts that we don't even see in America, you know, miracles, you know, tongues. And, you know, I was just thinking, you know, as a church, it's always good when, you know, we have a teacher and I'm thankful to God that we have, you know, uh, speakers that will get up and, and speak. But I was kind of thinking, you know, it seems to me that there's so many gifts that you'll never, you know, hear that pop up in the church. I was kind of thinking, seems kind of like a radical thing because no church in America, you know, had, well, I guess some do. I was thinking, you know, if there was only a time that we could have, you know, like 10 minutes after a service or 10 minutes after where just random, you know, it's like topics that that believers are maybe thinking of, you know, could come up.
0: Oh, we kind got to do that here to a certain degree. Yeah, it kind of, yeah. But fact is, you make a good point, Eric. In 1 Corinthians 12, these different gifts are gifts of the Holy Spirit. By definition, if you're born in America, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you're born into a church, a family that goes to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you're baptized as a baby, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you're catechized when you're 12, that doesn't make you a Christian. Conversion does. And that happens through a work of the Holy Spirit. So, to have gifts to share with the body, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Okay? The secret church just does not shape, the shape program. You don't need the Holy Spirit for that. It's just taking common things. Say here we're going to organize a group of people to have a religion. You need to be converted and thus filled with the Spirit to have boldness, to have comfort, to have gifts. That's the church. Now, let's let's just think about these things and may God do it in our midst. Let's love one another. I'm telling you, The world hates us. They totally hate us. If you don't think we need one another, your thinking isn't very biblical. We really need to pray for one another, to care for one another, to use our gifts to help one another, and God will bless us as his body. And our children, we pray that they're converted. But we're not doing anybody any favor by saying they're Christian when they aren't. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done in the word that you've revealed for our good, that we can understand it. May we have boldness in the Holy Spirit as well. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.